0: Well, I wanna welcome all of you who are joining us around the Atlanta metro area, those of you joining join us across the country and around the world. It's an honor to be able to steer us the next couple of weeks as we start something new. Um, I wanna to begin today with a question. And as you think about distractions in our world, I'm curious, how many of you think there are less distractions today than there were 10 years ago? Less distractions, no hands for that. How many of you think of the same number of distractions than we had 10 years ago? Wow, we may not meet, need the sermon today. How many of you think there's more distractions than there were 10 years ago? And all the hands go up at all the locations. Um, uh, today, in our world, we're really swimming upstream. There's so many distractions in our world, and there's so many people in different parts uh, of our society that get distracted in so many ways. And if we're really honest, um, there's some distractions. Or when some people are, are distracted, it's potentially fatal. There's some people we just don't want to be distracted, like this guy right here. Nobody wants to be in the in the ER when uh, the doctor's checking the scores from from the game. Um, not at all this guy. You can see his face there. Um, or how about this guy? If you can't see, these are airplanes on the screen. Your air traffic controller playing solitaire, uh, caught, um, not a good thing. not that, that has uh, major implications. Or how about this? If, if you're daring enough to go skydiving, you don't want the person who's packing the chute to be distracted when they're packing your chute. Now, here's the thing. Some distractions aren't fatal. In fact, the most common of distractions in our world aren't fatal, um, usually fatal, but they're not. Not inconsequential either. Like you don't, if you go to the hairstylist, you don't want them to be distracted. Um, if you're a tattoo person, you don't want them to be distracted, lest you have regerts. Um <laughs> And if you have kids, you don't want them to be distracted when this is going on. As a matter of fact, I, um, I, we thought we were past this stage. Um, we should be past this stage, but uh, we have one who will remain nameless who gets distracted when he goes in the bathroom, and it's because he takes his iPad with him. And just recently, he made a mess everywhere, and he's calling me, and I go in, and it's a mess everywhere, and and I look at him and go, buddy, you have to focus on what you're doing. And his response was, well, at least I didn't get out of my iPad. So we've got a lot of work to do uh, in our own home. Uh, In a a recent study I was reading about workplace distractions, Uh, it talks about how there's so many things uh, that are integrated into our work world that are productivity killers. Um, In fact, here's the top five productivity killers at work for you employers. Anybody guesses on the first one? Cell phones, of course. We gave you a big hint uh, before that. Cell phones, major distraction. Uh, Second one is the internet. And then this is, I didn't, I didn't guess this, gossip, social media, personal email, but notice four of the top five, and even number three could be lumped in there. Four of the top five are all related to technology. And, and, and in our world, in a, in a, a world that's fast, uh, fast in terms of its, its uh, uh, progress in terms of technology and integrating that technology into our lives, as we've talked before, there's lots of benefits around that, but there's also lots Of distractions, and that's what I want to talk about for a couple of weeks because distractions can be killers for for different uh, parts of our lives. And these distractions are things that, that um sometimes sometimes are sneak they sneak up on us. We we find ourselves in places uh or doing things that we never intended to do. And um the etymology of this world is actually fascinating. I actually think it's it's instructive. Um it comes from a Latin word, and if you took Latin in high school, you'll have to let me know later if, if I mess this up. But dis is is the, the Latin word. And dis means apart, and trahir means uh, to drag or to draw. To drag or to draw away from. So it's, it's literally to drag or draw us away. And, and this is what happens, uh, when it comes to our minds and, and the brain, our human brain has amazing capacity. You know, this, uh, neuroscientists talk about the number of different functions the brain, uh, can, can handle at one time. But what's interesting about this is when it comes to our, 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 our focus, we can really only focus on one thing at a time. We get distracted when our brain sort of goes in a bunch of different directions and it, it focuses on a bunch of different things, which it has the ability to do. You hold lots of different things in your mind. You have lots of different to-do lists, lots of different intentions of what you're planning to do uh, in your life. And, and you have the ability to respond quickly to, to, to outside interference and, and either uh, deny that or, or move toward that. But what's interesting is when it comes to distractions, what's happening is our attention is really undermining our intention. Our attention is undermining our intention. Which which is just to say that the things we intended to do and, and I'm I'm betting so many of you, you, you've experienced this before. You, you got on your phone to look up something or, or to find a time for something and you got caught on social media and you're looking at all sorts of different things. And what happens is, is that when our attention is averted by distractions, it's pulling these two things apart. Which focus, obviously, it does just the opposite. The focus is trying to pull this, this, this together. And the more these are, are overlapping, the more they're integrated, the more our intention is focused on what we were intending to do, what we were intending to focus on, the more productive and the more progress we make. Now, I, I didn't say anything there that's, that's, that's genius that you didn't already know. But this is important because this is what happens each and every day to all of us. And we're culpable, by the way. You don't know this, but you enable this in your life. And the reason you enable it is because you've convinced yourself, we've all convinced ourselves, we're good at multitasking, right? How many of you are good at multitasking? Let's just take a a poll real quick. Liars, you all think you're good at multitasking. You think you're fantastic at it. I can do more than one thing at a time. Um, Earl Miller, he's a a neuroscientist. Some of you know I like neuroscience. I'm a bit of a nerd. He's a cognitive systems neuroscientist. This guy's brilliant. This is what he says about multitasking. It's an illusion, It's an illusion. As humans, he says this, as humans, we have a very limited capacity for simultaneous thought. We can only hold a little bit of information in the mind at any single moment. You don't actually multitask, you task switch. Maybe some of you are good at task switching, but multitasking is an illusion. He says, but this is a waste of time and it makes you error prone and it decreases your ability to be creative. Linda Stone, who did a, a study uh, on the, it's called the Attention Project. She's done a bunch of research. She discovered that multitasking is only possible when you focus on one cognitive uh, a task and one mindless task. Like you're listening to a podcast while you're eating. Like we can do those things because eating doesn't take any really cognitive ability from you and, and it's really easy for you to focus on, on the, the podcast while you're listening to that. But due to the integration of technology in our world, um, it's become commonplace for people to routine, routinely engage, or re, re, if I can say that right, routinely engage uh, in two tasks requiring cognitive ability at the same time, and and this has created it's brought about actually a new social disorder. As if we needed another one of those, it's a social disorder, and it's called continuous partial attention which describes so many of us in our world especially from because our cell phones now full transparency i'm not pointing a finger at you preparing for this series on distractions i almost ran into a concrete column in the buckhead church parking lot because i was on my phone searching for books on focus <laughs> true story and four of the five of them I had already read when I found the top five books on focus. They obviously weren't helping me. It's crazy that we need a law in our world, is it not? To restrict us from using our smartphones while operating a heavy piece of machinery traveling 70 to 80 miles an hour on the highway. But I do need that law. I need that law to deter me. And some of you need that law to deter you because we overestimate our ability to do two things that require cognitive attention at the same time. And many, many in our society, many of us, we live in a constant state of distraction. We live in a constant state of continuous partial attention. Now, here's the thing that that really amounts to a a loss of focus. Loss of focus is, is what it means to not be attentive or to, to focus your attention on something. But here's where this becomes important. And, and if you're a leader, if you're somebody who cares about being in a better place tomorrow than you were today in your business, a better place tomorrow than you were today in your family, the, a better your kids to have a better future, your, your future to have a, a better, be in a better place in your marriage, a loss of focus is really a lack of vision. And the wisdom writer in the scriptures he said that where uh, there is no vision, the people perish. Now, some of us go, I mean, are we really gonna die? But if you think about that for a second, where there's no vision, when, when you're not focused on where you're headed and what's most important, relationships deteriorate, don't they? Dreams get snuffed out. Organizations break down. When we lose sight and we lose focus about where we're headed, when our intention is not where, where our attention is. We lose focus and we lack vision. Even if you have vision, some of you are going, no, no, I have vision for the future. I have a vision for my life. I have a vision for my marriage. I have a vision for my family. I have a vision for my company or your organization for your future. Here's the thing, a loss of focus is functionally the same thing because losing sight of your vision is a lack of vision. And many of us have lost out or missed out significantly due to distractions in our lives things that distracted us from where we intended to go or what we intended to do or the person type of person we're intending to be and it may have affected you uh, uh professionally something that was urgent uh came before something that was important and and it may be as small as you, you know you missed a deadline or uh the the you lost a deal or or you didn't make your quota or you didn't get the promotion but it may have cost you in other ways it may have cost you relationally with your boss or your coworker. It may have cost you with a, a significant relationship with something that's not, just not urgent or important. It's, it's ultimate, something that you would, you would say, hey, this is one of the most important things in my life, but you got distracted from it. And because you didn't prioritize that relationship, now there's distance in your marriage or there's little substance in your relationship with your parents. Or maybe your kids have found some resentment because of their lack of being prioritized in your life. Now, 25 years ago, I heard our senior pastor, Andy Stanley, unpack a story about a guy named Nehemiah, and it was transformational for me as an individual and as a leader in my 20s. And it has been critical to some of the most difficult challenges I've faced relationally in my marriage, in my life, in my leadership, in my 30s and my 40s. So I want to talk a little bit about Nehemiah. And I got to give you a little bit of quick context because the next two weeks, we're going to to camp out in his story. And we're going to talk about how he dealt with distractions. So quick history lesson. I'll make it fast for those of you who are not into history. 587 B.C., uh, the Israelites were attacked by the Babylonians, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple of God that Solomon built were destroyed. And the Babylonians carried the, the Jews off into exile. And then in 539 BC, Cyrus, uh, who was the, the king of the uh, Persians and the Medes, some of you remember about, hearing about them in school. You probably don't remember, but you did learn about them in school. Uh, king Cyrus, he conquers Babylon and and the 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 Medes and the Persians had the largest kingdom at this time uh, in the in the, the known world and he has no interest to keep the Israelites uh, in Babylon they weren't any threat to him. Jerusalem had been destroyed, had been had laid in waste for more than 50 years. And, and so he releases the Jews. He said, you can go back if you want. And, and so some of them did. Actually, a guy named Zerubbabel, he, left a fir- he, he led a first wave of people uh, back to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild the temple, temple of God. And so in 516 BC, actually, the temple reconstruction was complete. And it seemed like things were going well for the people of God but God's presence wasn't with them and the people weren't thriving. So Ezra, which some of you know, Ezra is the book that comes right before Nehemiah in the Bible is really originally one work, Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and Ezra leads a second wave going back thinking, here's what we need to do. We need to call the people to repent and return to the law of God. And, and, and that's what's gonna help us to thrive. And it didn't go well. In fact, Ezra took matters into his own hands. And it's a fascinating story. You should read it. You should read your Bible, by the way. It's a fascinating story. And, 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 and Ezra takes matters into his own hands. He does things that God doesn't command him to do. And, and families get destroyed. And the people become divided. And a hundred years now, from the time that Cyrus first released, released, released the Jews, a, a group of people come back to Babylon in 446 BC. They come back to report about what's happening In Jerusalem, a group of men come back. And this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah. Nehemiah greets these these men as they first come. And this is what he says. He says, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there uh, to Jerusalem uh, from captivity and about how things were going back there in Jerusalem. And they said to me that things were not going well for those who return uh, to the province of, of, of Judah. They're in great trouble and they're in disgrace. And the wall, he says, this is the one detail he gives. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days, I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Now, there's something strange about this because this idea about the walls being destroyed and the city being burned, this was actually not new news, this started with the siege that happened 150 years earlier on the city, and maybe Nehemiah's generation just hadn't heard of it, but when the report comes back, it's like, yeah, the temple's been built, and Ezra's trying to get people to follow God's law, but things are a disaster, and Nehemiah got some more information about how the temple actually wasn't being maintained after it was, after it was rebuilt, and they weren't making the proper sacrifices they were supposed to be making to God. People weren't living according to God's law, and the ideas and customs, and this is what caught Nehemiah's attention? The ideas and customs and religious practices of the surrounding nations, the people that were outside of them, had infiltrated the people of God, and they had begun to embrace their, their customs and their religious practices. Fast forward early the following spring. Nehemiah says, I was serving the king as wine. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had a prestigious, prominent role, trusted by the king. And I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Think about that. It's like I had never had one bad day at work. And this, on this day, I showed up sad. And so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. And then Nehemiah having to risk, he says this. He says, how, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins. And the gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah had a burden. So some of you have heard this, this, this called a holy discontent. Uh, Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, which by the way, was on that top five of books on focus. In his book, Deep Work, uh, which I think is a tremendous read. He calls it, I love this phrase. He calls it a terrifying longing. Nehemiah had a terrifying longing in the face of something that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the way it was. Nehemiah had this terrifying longing that he needed to do something about this. And he was troubled, and it was burdening him. It was bothering him. He couldn't get, get away from it. We're gonna come back to this in a second. But the king was so moved by Nehemiah's sadness, by this longing, this deep longing inside him, that the king asked him, think about this, the king of the known world, the largest empire in the world, Kirk said. The, the king asked him, he said, how can I help you? I, I don't want you to be sad. You're, you're a trusted advisor. You're, you're, a, you're a trusted protector of mine. You've served me faithfully. What can I do to help you? And Nehemiah said, he replied, If it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Now you have to think about this for a minute. This is the king, and he's not wanting to, to rebuild another an empire that once ruled that region. He wants to continue to conquer and he wants to protect his kingdom. But this king, because of Nehemiah's faithfulness, he not only released him from his role, but he resourced him with the support and the supplies that he needed. So Nehemiah takes off. He gets a bunch of people to go with him. He has everything that he needs, but he needs. But immediately he was met with both threats from the outside and dissension on the inside, resistance from his own people. In fact, next week we're gonna look. There were three different times, three unique distractions that came that could have knocked. Nehemiah off from his terrifying longing and his vision to rebuild the walls. And, and, and we're going to unpack each of those uh, next week because they're, they're common to the different types of distractions that we deal with in our lives. But before we get to that, I want to go to the end because there was actually something else that kept Nehemiah on target, that kept him headed towards um, the rebuilding of this wall and ultimately the restoration of his people, this all came to a head as, as the project was nearing its completion. Uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, Geshem, the Arab, uh, all, uh, excuse me, and the rest of the, the enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, Nehemiah tells us, though we had not yet set up the doors to the gate. So we hadn't, we hadn't secured the city yet. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages on the plane of, oh no, which should be a clue. <laughs> Too bad this wasn't written in English. So it wasn't a clue to him, but Nehemiah was smart. He, he, was, he, he knew these guys were up to no good. He knew that they weren't his friends. He knew that, that they did not want to see uh, the, the nation of Israel restored. And so Nehemiah responds in this famous response. I'm sure you've heard it before. He, he responds with resolve. He looks at them and he says, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Nehemiah had his life set on something. His sight set on something. He was aiming his life towards something of significant value. And he said, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. I can't be distracted from this. There's a terrifying longing inside of me that's driving me, and I have to stay focused. In fact, four times they sent invitations back to him, and each time Nehemiah responded with this phrase, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. The fifth time uh, came with a little, different, uh, a little different force. They made up a story and, and they basically said that they were going to send back word to the king, the king that had resourced him and helped him, uh, communicating uh, Nehemiah's real intentions that that he was really going to lead a rebellion, and it sort of it, 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 their invitation was accompanied by a threat, and so Nehemiah had a lot to think about. But even after that, we see Nehemiah's resolve. He didn't budge. He wasn't going to be. He wasn't going to be drawn apart. He wasn't going to be dragged away from his vision. He was going to stand on course, and he was going to stay focused. Here's my question for today: How is that possible? I mean, Nehemiah dealt with significant distractions. Some of you in your business, in your work, in your family, in your relationships, you deal with significant distractions, things that are not ultimate things, things that are are not even important things. They're just urgent things that distract you. How is it possible that Nehemiah continued to stay focused? Because I don't think resolve is enough just continuing to persevere. I mean, we've proven over and over and over we're susceptible to distractions. But I believe the answer is in Nehemiah's terrifying longing. Nehemiah, when he was asked, what can I do? Or why are you sad? He says, how can I not be sad? There's a, there's a deep burden here. The city where my ancestors are buried, this is, these are my people. This is where I came from. It's, it's in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah, this wall for him, it, this boundary, it represented God's faithfulness and what God had promised his nation. In the promised land, it was a physical symbol of that. And Nehemiah was convinced that rebuilding the walls was essential symbolically and functionally to restoring his people to God's favor, to restoring his people, to thriving once again as God's chosen and set apart people. It was this burden. It was this holy discontent. It was this terrifying longing that both captured and required Nehemiah's full attention. He had already said yes to something. Cal Newport quotes David Brooks in his book, Deep Work. And this is what David Brooks said, actually from the Art of Focus. And he said, if you want to win the war for attention which is what you need to do if you're gonna avoid distraction. The first thing you gotta do is not say no to the trivial distractions, to try to say yes to the subject that arouses a terrifying longing and let that terrifying longing crowd out everything else. And that is precisely what Nehemiah did. His exclamation is, I'm doing a great work. It's not, well, what do you want to talk about? Or what's the opportunity? It's like, no, no, no. I I don't even have time for a discussion. I'm doing a great work and I'm not coming down from that. Nehemiah's terrifying longing ultimately served as the essential fuel for not only empowering his vision, but sustaining his focus for keeping him on task and keeping him on course. And here's why. It's because great work is found just on the other side of a terrifying longing. Great work is always on the other side of a terrifying longing. It's that deep, intense desire. And some of you, you've had this. There's something about uh, uh, what must be done that you think I, I can't let it go. You have a burden on the inside of you. Some of you, for your children to to do better and have better than you did when you were growing up. Some of you, it's to in the in the face of of odds that don't look good in in terms of of marriage in our society to uh, to have your yes be sustained to the very end of your lives and and you're swimming upstream. But you see this. You have a burden to not allow things to be what they are to be what they could be and what they should be. And this deep, intense desire that often emerges when you start asking the questions about your circumstance, you start questioning, am I where I'm supposed to be? You're you're dissatisfied with your current reality. And and you think, there's got to be more, there's got to be better. And here's the thing, all of us at times have that burden that goes on inside of us. The problem is as a society, we've become accustomed accustomed to medicating and numbing anything that's sad, or any sort of longing, much less a terrifying longing. And and the truth is, is that's what gets us off course, is we don't stay in touch with those burdens that are inside of us, and we don't follow those. A longing for more can be terrifying. And the reason is, is because it leads us out of our comfort zones. It it creates uncertainty. It, It causes us to have to embrace change and but it's it's for a, a greater level of meaning and fulfillment in life. It's for a better future for us or someone else, or because of a great work that needs to be done in our community, or for a group of people you need to provide for, or some meaningful work that you're contributing to society. You now, terrifying longing. Some of you are thinking, "Well, what 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 is that?" Like the more, because because the truth is, is um, Nehemiah was in, intensely clear about what his focus was and a, a terrifying longing usually involves three things it involves first a, a problem there's a problem that needs to be solved secondly it it involves possibility of how things could be different and then lastly it it involves a passion in Andy's book, uh, Visioneering, which is a fantastic book, he writes, he, he unpacks the, the entire story of Nehemiah in this book, Visioneering. Uh, he wrote it, I think, around 25 years ago. And in this book, he says that vision is always a solution to a problem. If you think about that, that's what this is. That's the intersection of this terrifying longing. It's the solution to a problem. There's a problem that has to happen. That's what is. The problem is what is. And then, uh, the possibility is what could be. And the passion is the desire inside of me that says, hey, it not only could be, but this is what should be. For Nehemiah, the problem was his, his nation was in ruins. The possibility was to rebuild the walls uh, so that, that the people could thrive once again. And his passion motivated him to ask greatly of the king to risk and to take this adventure. Now, here's the thing, the question I have for you in in all of this, and I I say all of that today to ask you this question, what's your great work? Because the truth is, is what's on the other side of every terrifying longing is great work. And we all have burdens at different times in our lives, we're burdened for things that, that aren't the way they ought to be. And we have the opportunity, the terrifying longing is inviting us into doing great work. What's your great work? Now, I'm not asking you what you spend the most amount of your time doing every day. I'm not asking you, you know, what what are the the hours of your day look like and where do you spend your time? I, I wanna know, like, what's the great work that's on the other side of something that's burdened you? What's your wall? What are you building? Who are you building Here's here's what I believe, regardless of what season you're in, I believe God has something great for you in it. He's prepared you for something and it changes from season to season. But here's the thing, The, the, the Ephesians 2 says this, it says, we're God's handiwork. If nobody's ever told you this, you're God's handiwork. And you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. And if you don't believe that you can do great things, if you don't believe that there's a good work for you to do, that's not simply a lack of confidence in you. That's discounting the handiwork of God. He's designed you, he's gifted you, he's placed you to do something great in your world. And, and I'll just say this, if you're, you're not a Jesus follower and, and you felt yourself stuck or aimless, I'm so glad you're here because you're, you've, you've thought... Um, At times, like, there's got to be more. The things that you thought would fulfill you, they've left you feeling empty. And I just wonder, I just just ask gently, like, is it possibly because God has something great for you and connecting in a relationship with his son, Jesus, he wants to speak to you and empower you and lead you in that direction? See, oftentimes, that's how we discover the great work. And, and it's the good works that we're doing. Sometimes the good works God's already placed in our hands and our faithfulness with that good work that makes it great. And they also happen to be the things that our, our continuous partial attention uh, gets placed towards. But some of you have things right in front of you that God's uh, given you. He's placed good work in your hands and you focusing on that, whether you think it's great work or not, you being diligent and a good steward of that, Raising those humans, investing in that class, providing for those people, pointing people and being a light that points people towards God in our society, that's great work. Parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, investing in the next generation is great work. Don't get distracted from that. Marketplace leaders creating meaningful jobs for people that provides necessary income so people can eat and live indoors. I mean, that's great work. How you treat your people points people towards their Heavenly Father. Nonprofit leaders, and we've we've celebrated and partnered with so many of these in our city and around the world and through Be Rich and, and Other Ways. I mean, serving under-resourced, marginalized people is great work. There's no shortage of great work. In fact, Colossians 3 says, when you do whatever you do, if you do whatever you do, whatever problem you're trying to solve, if you do with all your heart as unto the Lord, you're doing great work. Sometimes, however, sometimes like in Nehemiah's case, God is calling us out of some of those things. He's calling us away from some of the things that are in front of us that have actually distracted us from the great thing he wants us to do. And it can be scary. It, it can be scary um, because we're leaving something great. I told you already, Nehemiah, he was leaving a great situation. Nehemiah is setting out and he's leaving a great job. He's leaving a, leaving a, leaving a prestigious job where he's, he's trusted by the king and he's walking toward a mess. He didn't didn't give up a bad situation for a better situation. He left a great situation. He could have gone, no, I'm fine. Forget about all those people. I'm fine. But because of his terrifying longing, it was inside of him. It provided him the courage to follow the opportunity that God placed in front of him. When God cracked open the heart of King Cyrus and said, not only will I let you go, I wanna help you and I wanna support you. I wanna lead you. Nehemiah was able to courageously follow because he stayed in tune with the terrifying longing inside of him. You see, the terrifying longing, the burden that's inside of you, it's what keeps us from being distracted from things that aren't worth your life. They're not worth aiming your life toward. They're not worth giving your life to. And so many of us, if you're trying to to sum up what you give your life to, there's so many different things we give our lives to. And I just wanna challenge you that I believe God has a great work for you to do. Some of you are currently on course to that. And I just say, don't get distracted. Continue to stay focused to that, uh, by, by that burden that's inside of you to your yes, even before dealing with the distractions. We'll deal with some of those next week. But God has something great for you. Now, it would be a miss for me to, to, to fail to... Um, to share and to point out an extraordinary example of this that's had a profound impact on so many of us, including me. 28 years ago, um, after watching, after watching too many people walk away from Jesus, too many people walk away from faith, too many people walk away from the church unnecessarily, there were a group of six courageous people who left great jobs, who left gainful employment, that put food on their table and a roof over their head. And those six people started this church that has turned into a network of churches, a global impact, has had a global impact. And their terrifying longing was to draw bigger circles. Circles so big, uncomfortably sized large circles, like the circles Jesus drew. So nobody would unnecessarily turn from their heavenly father. And from the beginning, it's not just recent days. From the beginning, there's opposition. There was no shortage of that. There was no shortage of of people that wondered or criticized what was being done. And I'll just tell you, I've had the honor for the last 25 of the last 28 years that this has been going on to have a front row seat and watch their faithfulness seeing the great work they committed themselves to, the great work they refused to come down from, and the great work that's had an immeasurable impact on an immeasurable number of people in our communities and across the country and around the world. Their courage and their focus, it serves as an incredible illustration of what's, what's, what's possible with God When you allow him to grip your heart with a terrifying longing, because, because, great work. It's always found just on the other side of a terrifying longing. So, my question for you is what is it for you? God has great work for you. Some of you are burdened by some things, and God's pointing your heart in a direction, and it involves risk, and it's gonna involve stepping out. But you know the problem. And God's opened your eyes. He's given you vision to the possibility. And you know that what could be, should be. So here's my prayer. May God sensitize your heart to the longing he's placed inside of you. May you discover or rediscover with clarity the great work that because of God's handiwork, he designed you in advance to do. May you Continue to do whatever you do with all your heart is unto the Lord so that you glorify him. And may you stay focused, fueled by that terrifying longing inside of you in the face of distraction. And when it comes over and over and over, and it will, moms, it will, leaders, it will, teachers, it will, those of you who are making a difference for the the most disenfranchised people in our community, the distractions will come. And in the midst of that, I pray that you courageously declare, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. These people need me. This person needs me. This mission needs me. And God's captured my heart with it and I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. Heavenly Father, I pray for somebody today who's here. They've been carrying something for a long time. I pray that you just continue to bother them. They don't like that prayer, but I just pray you'd bother them with it, because I believe it's you calling them to great work. I pray that that thing that continues to terrify them, that longing inside of them, that as it bothers them, that you would open their eyes, you'd give them tremendous vision. There's somebody that needs to step out because there's a great work that needs to be done. And I pray that maybe today, a little bit of what we talked about today would trigger in their heart the desire to take the next step toward you, to follow that longing you've placed inside of them. I pray for somebody who's here today and they're struggling in the great work that you've asked them to do. You've given them a great work that feels too heavy, it feels like it's too much. I pray that you would give them the grace to trust you more and more and more. That as they continue to aim their life toward this thing that you've placed in their path, whether they ask for it or not, it's a great work that you've given them to do. I pray that you would remind them that you're glorified in their commitment, you're glorified in their focus and that ultimately you'll bring greater meaning and purpose into their life because of that faithfulness. And I pray it in Jesus' name.